The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Ellen van Damme. Ellen has a BA, MA and PhD in criminology from the KU Leuven in Belgium, as well as an MA in conflict and development from Ghent University in Belgium, and has just finished a Fulbright postdoc at the Center for the Study of International Migration at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA. Her PhD research concerned the role of women in and around gangs in Honduras, Central America, for which she did extensive fieldwork between 2017 and 2020. Today we will talk about gangs in Central America, the role of gender, and the relationship to immigration. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? That's the Belgian female rugby team, the Bell Sevens. That is a very original choice. <laughs> I doubt whether we'll ever hear that again. Second, what is your favorite political song? My Mind is for Sale by Jack Johnson. And finally, what is your favorite political book? So I'm going to say two. I have a poem that I like really a lot. It's Howl by Ellen Ginsberg. And then the novel Dancing in the Mosque by Homera Kaderi would be my favorite political book. So let's start out with a bit of a nerdy question. What is a gang? How do you define it? And what sets it apart from other groups? For my research, I started from the Eurogang definition, and the Eurogang defines a gang as any durable street-oriented youth group whose involvement in illegal activity is part of its group identity. So let's say that's like the basic definition from where one can start to conduct research on gangs. Now, with the gangs in Central America, we still have to like go a step further because they're quite specific. Like in Central America, the gangs are called maras or pandillas. And if you translate that, both translates to gang. But actually, we need to distinguish them. So the term maras will be used for the maras of Atucha, or MS-13, and the term pandillas will be used for the Barrio 18 or 18th Street Gang. And this is important because like in the media, they use the terms interchangeably, but a member of the maras of Atucha will be quite offended if you call him or her a pandillero or pandillera. So is that a little bit as, I guess it's now not so fashionable anymore, but in the 1990s, the Bloods and the Crips, the distinction is not so much in how they operate, but with which larger group they identify. Yeah, so they do also have like a little bit of differences in how they operate. Barrio 18, like especially in Honduras, tends to be like more bloodthirsty, more overt violence and everything. And Mara Salvatucha is oriented a bit more towards organized crime, or that's how they evolved. But they definitely have differences, like Bloods and Crips have different colors. Also, the Mara Salvatucha and Barrio 18 will adopt like different styles of dress and stuff like that. So gangs in Central America are not the most obvious topic for a graduate student in Belgium. How did you get to this topic? 
Yeah, so basically when I was in my last years of high school, I was quite just sick and tired of everything, I guess. I needed to open my mind. I had never traveled outside of Europe and I wanted to learn Spanish. So I signed up for a program called AFS and it's an exchange program. And you need to choose a couple of countries where you want to go to. And I choose Honduras from a list. I had never heard of the country, but it was like Spanish speaking. So that's how I ended up in Honduras in 2009, actually right after the coup d'etat. I did volunteer work with Youth at Risk. So that's kind of how I was introduced to the whole gang issue. Then I went back home in Belgium, studied criminology. And for my master's thesis, I did research on gangs in the whole of Central America. So that's how I already had some contacts. And then my PhD on women and gangs is because I found out there was not a lot of research on women and gangs in general, and especially not in Central America or in Honduras. I love how random the stories of many people are about how they come to the topic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it's a difficult question, but can you sketch a history of gangs in Central America? Roughly, how old is the phenomenon? Can they be found across the region? Have gangs changed fundamentally in what they are, how they operate in recent decades? Yeah, so that's a very important question because very often we think that gangs in Central America were born in Central America and we're now importing them and their crime into the U.S., but actually it's the other way around. So the gangs in Central America, the Mara Salvatucha, Barrio 18, were born in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the gang capital of the world. And during the 1960s until the 1990s, there were civil wars and conflicts in Central America. Many people migrated towards the US. Some youngsters, and this is definitely not the majority, but some youngsters due to socioeconomic deprivation and other issues entered those gangs. So the Barrio 18 was already existing, it existed most mostly of Mexican migrants, and they existed already since like the 60s. The Mara Salvatucha was pretty new, and basically it was just a group of youngsters, self-dorn youngsters. They were not a gang, so they were just like a group of youngsters hanging on the street, listening to rock music. Some of them ended up in prison, and in prison in the US, and in this case in Los Angeles, it's all governed by gangs. So they had a choice. Either they established themselves as a gang in prison, or they needed to join another gang. So that's how the Mara Salvatrucha basically was established. Then in the 1990s, um, after the conflict and wars ended in Central America, many people were sent back to their countries of birth. Among them, also some gang members that were incarcerated and just sent back without like much communication with Central American countries. And so that's how those gang practices were imported into Central America. So if we want to say like how old they are, well, if we count as from when they got back to Central America, I would say roughly three decades. Can we find them across the region? Yes, mostly in the northern part of Central America. So this is like the so-called Northern Triangle, but that's a term we cannot use anymore because it's stigmatizing for the region. So we say northern part of Central America, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. They have different histories a bit, but more or less similar gang issues. For example, in El Salvador, you have the MS-13, which is the strongest, and the Barrio 18 there is divided into the Sureños and Revolucionarios, whereas in Honduras, Barrio 18 is just one big gang. And have they changed? I mean, yes, like they change gradually, but also like on short terms, we can often see a lot of changes on a local level. But gradually, I would say as from the early 2000s, 
the Mano Dura anti-gang policies were established. And this was in the whole of Central America. And basically, these were very hard-hand policies supposedly to fight back on the gang issue, but it was actually just very stigmatizing towards youngsters that were wearing baggy clothes, had tattoos, and so forth. They were labeled as such as gang members, even though they were not necessarily. Yeah, so it's like a typical labeling theory, I would say. Yeah, and that again sounds very American, right? This is a similar thing that we had in the 80s and the 90s. And of course, we still have today in the United States stigmatizing certain groups of people, disproportionate people of color, of course. These anti-gang policies in Central America, were they domestic designed or was this after significant pressure from the U.S.? Yeah, so I think it's two separate questions because there has always been a lot of U.S. pressure on those governments. But I would say like for those Manodura policies, they kind of try to copy some New York and other U.S. anti-gang policies. So it's more, yeah, that they try to copy that thinking, oh, this will help. But actually, it became way worse. And we can also see that like in the stats, like violence, crime, homicide statistics, it definitely became much worse in the 2000s. Now, he did extensive field work into women in and around gangs in Honduras. I can imagine that this came with quite significant challenges. What were some of the key things? Yeah, there were definitely a lot of challenges. I think the first thing would be, and that's like one of my gatekeepers, so one of the people who helped me in gaining access to the field, he said, studying gangs out of all topics, studying gangs is like one of the most difficult ones to study. And he said studying women in gangs is like even a step further, it's even more difficult. The person was not trying to discourage me, but just acknowledging that I would have to take my time. And that's what I did. So I really took a lot of time to get to know the field, get to know some people who could grant me access to the field. Now, with those gatekeepers, luckily, I focused on several people because several people and in the end couldn't help me anymore. I also had an experience, a negative experience with a police officer who was going to grant me access to interview very prominent female gang members. But in the end, he basically wanted more like he was harassing me, which is a thing that happens a lot, especially to young female researchers. But so luckily I had several gatekeepers. So when some of them fell off, I could still continue with others. And then, yeah, we're living in a patriarchy and also the gang is like very patriarchal. So I had to, in theory, ask permission to the male gang leaders to do research with the female gang members. Now, luckily, when the day came that I had to go to prison to go to the male gang member, gang leader section, that particular day, all gang leaders from the male prison were sent to a maximum security prison. So all was relative, because then, according to my gatekeeper, given they weren't there anymore, I did not have two permissions. So I could just start off with the women immediately. But yeah, there were many, many challenges. <laughs> so you already mentioned that. We live in a patriarchy, but at the same time, at least in the popular depiction, gangs are extremely masculine. Not only are there almost only male gang members, but masculinity seems central in this strongly machismo culture. What role in general does gender play in gangs? 
Yeah. So first of all, there's kind of a misconception that there are only boys or men in gangs. That's actually from traditional gang research since the beginning of the 1900s that only looked at boys or men in gangs and completely disregarded girls or women. I always say, like, if you look for men, you will find men. If you look for women, you will find women. So it's true that masculinity plays an important role. It is very important, and it was important for my research to adopt more of a gendered or feminist perspective, because that helps to critically analyze those gendered roles. Because if we don't do that, if we don't adopt a gendered perspective, we will just repeat the same patriarchal narrative. So we need to be critical towards that. Gender roles are definitely still very patriarchally divided, also in the gang, but I always say the gang reflects society. So it's not that different from society. So as well in society, women tend to be much more involved in the household, in taking care of children, also taking care of their husbands. Like women will go to prison to give food to their husbands, to bring other necessities. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important to adopt a more critical perspective on that. You already said that to a certain extent, gangs reflect societies, right? And so then the question is, in what way is that machismo, that masculinity, a reflection of gang life or of Central American life? How specific are the gangs that you looked at? So if I would, for example, study, for the sake of argument, a gang in Iceland, like, would I find different gender dynamics? Yeah, so that's the question, obviously. Um, I do think that Honduras is probably even a bit more machoistic or patriarchal than other countries. But again, all is relative, because also in the gang, we see how even though women are kind of obliged to fulfill those traditional female roles of taking care of the household, we see that they actually always have had active roles in the gang. And this is not that different from other situations. We see that women have always been active in like transporting and smuggling drugs, in Honduras, extortion is a very important way of revenues for the gangs. Women have been collecting way more extortions over the past years than men because men just attract way too much attention. And like other research in Central America has shown that like where the women say like, well, the men are just too stupid because they attract way too much attention. They're way too overtly gangish. And that's how they end up in prison. Whereas the women can play with their gender role, like they can on one hand, like act very feminine and seducive and whatever, and very docile. So they're never seen as a threat. So that way, it's kind of, quote unquote, easier for them to manage the street, do their business, whether it's like drugs, extortion money, but also like killing people. So yeah, there's like definitely those double standards for men and women in the gang. Right. Women using patriarchal expectations that create certain freedoms as they are underestimated more than anything, which you also saw in certain terrorist organizations, which would either use women or uh, have people dress up as women because they wouldn't be checked in the same way. Yeah, you so. definitely have that. I mean, but we should definitely also be aware that women are also because of that much more vulnerable. For example, with the drug smuggling, because women to say it very vulgarly, have two holes in their body. They can smuggle way more drugs into prison than men. You could say like, oh, that gives them a lot of agency because they earn money with it. It's, I mean, it's very dangerous to do. I don't think I need to explain that. So it's definitely, right. yeah, it's complex. 
So what role do women in general play in gangs? And are women predominantly part of male-dominated gangs or are there also women gangs? And are those women gangs then independent or are they kind of affiliates of? Yeah, so we see in research in general, so in research in the United States, we see both things. If we look specifically at Central America, where I did research, the traditional narrative would be that the gang is much more male, and especially the Mara Salvatrucha claims to only have male gang members since the early 2000s, because supposedly they eradicated all women from their gang because they were supposedly not trusted. But this is actually not true, because I myself interviewed women from the Mara Salvatrucha, so I know there are women in the gang. And I know because of the people I interviewed, I also interviewed former gang members, there always has been women in the gang. There roles definitely have changed and shifted. But instead of saying that there are female-only gangs, what you see were like female-only cliques. So say within the bigger gang, let's take the Mara Salvatrucha, you have different cliques. You could have like a female gang leader. She would have her group of women and she would occupy herself and her group of women with the smuggling of drugs, for example. So you do get that and you do get like cliques of women within larger gangs. But yeah, their roles, they always have had roles in the gang. And I would say they have increased or at least become more visible. They have increased because in, again, the Manadura policies, early 2000s, a lot of male gang members and gang leaders, because they were most visible on the street, were locked up in prison. In the beginning, women were then like kind of serving as messengers between prison and the community. But increasingly, women just took over the role of their men because the men would trust their own wife more than, say, another male gang member. And even independently from men, women have entered the gang and become higher up leaders, even though they didn't have a male partner in the gang. And I would say like over the, let's say, between five and 10 years, their roles have increased even more in the collection of the extortion money. Because of what I said, women attract less attention. Mm -hmm. And also in drive-by shootings. Because, for example, in Honduras, there is a law that a man cannot sit in the back of a motorcycle to avoid drive-by shootings. But obviously, women can also use a weapon. So we see, like, depending on how policies shift, also the roles of gang members shift. Now, I don't know whether you have studied that, but in what way does sexuality play a role here? I mean, machismo, of course, also generally is very homophobic. At the same time, at least in popular image here in the U.S. in particular, it's often when you have strong women and women who use violence. In U.S. popular culture, they're kind of disproportionately lesbian. I assume that the gangs are pretty heteronormative, to put it mildly, and homophobic. Is this something that is being debated? Is there space for gay men or lesbian women in gangs? Yes. Yeah, so that's indeed very interesting because on the one hand, you indeed also see with female gang members being very tough, sometimes wearing very baggy clothes. And then one would think, as you say, like, oh, they must be lesbian. But that's actually not true because the gang is indeed like very homophobic on the outside, I would say. Because again, it does happen that they are gay or lesbian or even trans gang members. There was a trans gang member in Tegucigalpa. The gang knew he was trans. 
but he used that because of the police would never suspect a trans person to be a gang member because the police knows that the gang is homophobic. So that person also used that. Like when the police would arrest him, he was like, I'm not a gang member. You know, the gangs do not tolerate people like me. So yeah, I mean, sexuality, it's very dual. There's definitely double standards because women on the one hand need to be very feminine and abide by those traditional female norms. But at the same time, if they want to be taken seriously, they need to be very tough. So we really see double standards, like women often to jump into the gang, they need to fight even harder, like physically fighting harder than male gang members to show how physically strong they are. But they still at the same time need to be feminine because otherwise they're not taken seriously as feminine woman either. But you definitely see them playing between those two roles. That's fascinating. Now, obviously, Central America has a close relationship with the regional hegemon, the United States, and you have already explained how the contemporary Central American gangs originated in L.A. Has that shifted? Because initially, the power was in L.A., and these people went back, as they also sometimes went to other states in the U.S. and started chapters there, but it was in L.A. that the power remained. Is that still the case or has the power shifted to Central America? Yeah, that's actually very interesting because I thought when I started my research that it was completely separate. I thought there was gang leadership in Central America and some old gang members in Los Angeles, and there was not really a lot of connection between both of them. But I was wrong. Actually, there are still very strong connections. For example, if a person in a gang, I focused on women, so if a woman wanted to leave the gang, especially if she was a higher up female gang leader, she had to ask permission. And back in the days, this was like written permission. And it still is written permission to all the gang leaders in both Central America, but also in Los Angeles. So I was quite surprised about that. So yeah, there still is leadership in Los Angeles. I guess this also has to do with the fact that, of course, most of the money is still made through drugs and the drug market, like in the end, is in the U.S., while the gangs will undoubtedly deal in Central American countries as well, they also play a major role in smuggling it into the U.S. Now, there's another connection between gangs in Central America and the U.S., and that's through immigration, right? What role do Central American gangs play in the immigration into the U.S.? So gangs definitely form a major push factor for people to leave the country. But it's not the only push factor. So besides gangs or like, let's say more particularly gang violence, gang crime, you also have domestic violence for women than in specific and children, structural violence, and now also more recently climate change that form major push factors. So I'm currently doing research on all those push factors. I'm studying women migrating from Honduras towards the US and towards Europe. That's very interesting to see. It's very often not only one particular factor that really pushes them out of the country, but gangs sometimes are like the final and most strong push factor. Because if a gang member comes and say the gang has been extorting you for a couple of years already, but all of a sudden they say, we're going to raise the extortion money from $50 a week to $500 a week. And this is based on true cases. I have seen cases like that. Then the family doesn't have any other option. I mean, they cannot pay that amount. So then the gang gives them 24 or max 48 hours to leave the country. And then they really have to leave. So yeah, they form a very important factor. 
And is this gang effect on immigration gendered? It definitely is gendered in the sense that for women leaving the country, and you must know, like most Central Americans cannot apply to a visa in the United States. So they have to leave through the route over land. And so for women, this route towards the US is like very violent. I mean, it's violent for everyone. But for women, let's say eight out of 10 risks sexual harassment or rape to an extent that before leaving the country, they will even inject contraceptives to avoid falling pregnant from a rape. So this is definitely gendered. And this means that women now increasingly look towards Spain and Europe to migrate because they can migrate to Spain based on a passport. They don't need a visa to enter Europe. So yeah, we definitely see differences there. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about gangs in Central America? The greatest misunderstanding about gangs in Central America is definitely that they can be exterminated via repressive hard-hand anti-gang policies. These mistakes have been made over the past decades. And if we look at the current situation with President Bukele in El Salvador, who is locking up massive amounts of alleged gang members, we see that countries just keep on repeating the same mistakes, I would say. People don't join the gang for fun. Most of them just don't have any other option. And policies should orient more towards like those root causes why people join a gang. But obviously, politically speaking, that's not very attractive because that's not feasible. If you're going to do preventative measures and you're going to tackle the root causes, that's not feasible. It's more feasible to lock up gang members and be very harsh. So unfortunately, yeah, I don't see a lot of change happening at that level. So your argument is that gangs are first and foremost a socioeconomic problem? Yeah, definitely. Like based on the research I have done, and that's like extensive ethnographic research, most youngsters, because we're talking about very young people joining the gang, boys as young as eight years old will be approached to do a little drug dealing or whatever. And they come from very poor backgrounds. It's only a minority that come from richer backgrounds. So most people really do not want to join a gang, but they live in like poverty. If you live in a gang controlled community, like a gang controlled neighborhood, you really don't have any other options. Like if the gang approaches you, and this is both girls and boys, then the family knows like either you leave the neighborhood and not even the neighborhood, but also the country. And speaking of Central America, where you have gangs everywhere, actually also like really leaving the region. So you see that. I mean, I've talked to women, mothers who said like, my daughter is getting a bit older now. I see that the guys, and this means like gang members are already eyeing at her. I know I will have to leave soon. So it's also a problem of the state having lost its monopoly of power, because to a certain extent, what this all means is that the state either doesn't want to protect these people or can't. What do you think is it? Yeah. So if we look at the previous government in Honduras, for example, the previous president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is currently on trial for cocaine trafficking in the United States. So I would definitely say like it's both. They can't and they don't want to. And it's true. I mean, like gang members have taken over like internal control of certain neighborhoods, but also of prisons and also like police officers and even higher police officials collaborate with the gangs and politicians collaborate with the narcos. So, yeah, it will definitely take some time to deal with that. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Ellen. Thank you for inviting me. You can follow Ellen van Damme on Twitter at at Ellen EVD.
Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain, and before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.